Well, last week we began our study of Armageddon and the Antichrist with 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, the current war in Israel has made many nervous that Armageddon, the final battle between the forces of good and evil, may be just around the corner. And they are right, but not in the way they imagine it. If my understanding is correct, the final battle will not take place on what Napoleon deemed the most natural battleground of the whole earth, a physical battleground in Israel, but will be spiritual in nature. On a day when it is not expected, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will appear with the armies of heaven to judge and to wage the final war against all who oppose him, slaying them with the sword that comes from his mouth and casting into the sea of fire the devil and all those whose names are not written in the book of life. And as I mentioned last week, the consistent message from Jesus and the apostles is that we must always be ready because Christ can appear at any moment. He does not have to wait for some future scenario to be played out before he can return. Jesus told us the Father alone knows the day and hour of his return. But John made it clear that we are living in the last hour. We are living in the final chapter of human history before the return of Christ. So how do you feel about that? Is the second coming of Christ something you fear? Or is it what you anticipate most in life? Are you afraid you might respond to his coming, as did those pictured at the breaking of the sixth seal in Revelation, when the sky was split apart like a scroll, and the kings of the earth, and great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, where they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? Or, do you look forward to the day? As did Martha Snell Nicholson, a highly regarded Christian poet of the last century who had four extremely painful and incurable conditions that kept her bedridden for 35 years. She wrote this in one of her books of poetry. The best part 
is the blessed hope of his soon coming. How I ever lived before I grasped that wonderful truth, I do not know. How anyone lives without it these trying days, I cannot imagine. Each morning, I think, with a leap of the heart, he may come today. And each evening, when I awake, I may be in glory. Each day must be lived as though it were to be my last. And there's so much to be done to purify myself and set my house in order. I am on tiptoe with expectancy. There are no more gray days, for they're all touched with color. No more dark days, for the radiance of his coming is on the horizon. No more dull days with glory just around the corner. And no more lonely days, with his footstep coming ever nearer, and the thought that soon, soon, I shall see his blessed face and be forever through with pain and tears. Is that your hope? Do you long for his coming? Can you confidently say with John, come, Lord Jesus? Or do you anticipate shrinking away from him in shame at his coming. It's my prayer and the prayer of the Apostle John that you might be confident when he appears. In 1 John 2.28, he writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If we are abiding in him, there will be no need for shame. In fact, as John points out, we can even be confident when he appears. At least we can be if we are righteous, if we are his children, if we are like him, and if we are pure. Wow, that, that sounds overwhelming. But as we'll see, all of that is more of God than it is of us. We can be made righteous. We can become his children again. We can become like him. And we can be made pure. All of that is true. We can confidently anticipate his return. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. To be righteous is to do the right thing. And while we may at times question what God has done or allowed to happen, few of us truly question the righteousness of God. 
If God does it, it's right, whether we understand it or not. You know, God sets the standard of righteousness. To call his righteousness into question is like taking an official government weight and putting it on our bathroom scale and then declaring the standard wrong because it differs from our scale. To be righteous, therefore, is to do as God does. And those who are born of God will do so. They will practice righteousness. Now, obviously, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not God. We're not always going to do the right thing. We may not even know what the right thing is to do in a particular situation. But it will always be our desire to do the right thing, and we will always strive to do that which is righteous. Now, fortunately, God has made it possible for us to be considered righteous when, in fact, we are not completely righteous. It's called by theologians imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is given to us. It's the righteousness that God gives us when we put on Christ. Paul calls it our breastplate of righteousness. And it's that imputed righteousness that gives us the confidence to stand before a perfect God. Because when he sees us, he sees his son. Our righteousness would appear as filthy rags before him. But the righteousness of our Savior makes us appear as if we are as, as righteous as he is. Now, that does not relieve us of the responsibility of personally practicing righteousness as well. We could never earn the right to stand before God by our righteous acts, but our righteous acts confirm that we have been born of him, that we are, in fact, his children. Let's continue into the third chapter. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. God is everyone's creator, but not everyone can be called a child of God. Now, how, you might ask, is that possible? How can our creator not be our father? Well, I think most would agree that fatherhood denotes a relationship that goes far beyond procreation. You know, we have a lot of fatherless individuals in the world today, but they all came into being through a procreative act. Likewise, God is everyone's creator. But not everyone has maintained a relationship with their creator. So in effect, God is no longer their father. 
Sin destroyed the relationship that existed between God and his creation. So we became fatherless. Through rebellion, we cut ourselves off from him, disinherited ourselves from him, and ceased to be his children. But he wanted us back and made the offer to adopt us back. He even paid the price for our adoption, a great price, the life of his only begotten son. But he's left it up to us to decide whether we want to join the family or not. And sadly, the vast majority have chosen to ignore his offer. They have refused to acknowledge his fatherhood. We, however, responded to his offer. We were overwhelmed by the great love expressed for us on the cross. We said, yes, we want an ongoing eternal relationship with the one who created us. We want him to be our father again. We want to be adopted back into the family of God. So we became his children by choice, his and ours. Paul put it this way in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have been adopted back into the family of God. And because of that, we can cry, Abba, Father, which is almost like calling him Daddy. Obviously, that gives us great confidence. We are awaiting a celestial family reunion more than awaiting a day of judgment. And we're confident of our place in the family because we can see the family resemblance. Hmm. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. You know, once you've determined a newborn is healthy and you've counted the fingers and toes, what do you do next? You start looking for family resemblances. You know, there's something very reassuring about family resemblances. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. The more we are like our Lord, the more we are confident of our relationship to him. And the beautiful thing is that once we become a child of God, he sets in motion a transforming process that makes us more like his son every day. Paul tells us it is, in fact, God's will that we become conformed to the image of his son. And as the spirit that's implanted in our hearts at spiritual birth bears fruit, 
we do find ourselves becoming more and more like Jesus every day. We become more loving, more joyful, more filled with peace and patience and goodness and self-control. We become kinder and gentler and more faithful. That is the fruit the Spirit produces within us. And those are the characteristics of Christ. And as they develop in our life, we become more and more like him. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are now being transformed into the image of the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. And as he added in Philippians 3.21, when Christ returns, he will even transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's what John is talking about here. When Jesus comes back, we can be like him in every way. He will not be some alien life form that's frightening to us. If we've been taking on his characteristics through life from one degree of glory to another, the second coming will simply be the final step in the process. And it's something we eagerly anticipate. We may not fully comprehend what we'll be like because we can't fully picture the glory of our Lord at his coming, but we have every confidence that he'll not be foreign to us nor us to him. When he comes back, we'll be like him because God predestined that his children be conformed to the image of his son. But what if I mess up? What if sin creeps into my life and I short circuit that transforming process? What if I slip and start becoming less and less like Jesus rather than more and more like him? What then? Then I acknowledge my sin and purify myself and get back on track. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we're looking forward to the second coming, we'll stay ready for it. And if we're ready for it, we will look forward to it. And through the grace of God, we can stay ready. We can remain pure. When sin creeps into our life, we can deal with it. We have the means by which to be purified. If we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what John told us in the first chapter. We can be pure when he returns. We can be as pure as he is because he has washed us in his blood and cleansed us and has made it possible for us to remain pure.
The key is keeping our hope fixed on him. Keeping him and the cross in sight at all times. The best way to be ready for Christ's return is to live with Christ every day. To never forget his presence in our life and let him keep us ready. Indeed, we can confidently await his return if we'll allow him to make us righteous, to make us his children, to make us like him, and to keep us pure. There's no reason for us to fear the second coming of Christ. Not if our hope is fixed on him. We, like Martha Snell Nicholson, should be able to say, the best part is the blessed hope of his soon coming. How I ever lived before I grasped that wonderful truth, I do not know. How anyone lives without it these trying days, I cannot imagine. Each morning I think, with a leap of the heart, he may come today. And each evening, when I awake, I may be in glory. Each day must be lived as though it were to be my last. And there's so much to be done to purify myself and to set my house in order. I am on tiptoe with expectancy. There are no more gray days. They're all touched with color. No more dark days. For the radiance of his coming is on the horizon. No more dull days with glory just around the corner. And no more lonely days with his footstep coming ever nearer. And the thought that soon, soon, I shall see his blessed face and be forever through with pain and tears. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, stand.